Raylan Casper White here with another festive episode of X-Ray. I have my ridiculously phallic microphone, which I have to hold handheld here. Handheld, unfortunately. I am here with Andrew. You have a middle, is it a middle name or is it just a McConnell? A what middle, is that? It's a middle name. It, it provides me with a little bit of ethnic differentiation. Okay. So you're not Jewish. I don't know why I thought you were Jewish for a minute, but then the McConnell, I'm like, no, he's definitely not a Hebrew. Uh, I don't know if there are many Jewish people called McConnell. I don't know either. I mean, what is the Jewish population? That's Scottish, right? That's a Sc of Scottish origin. Uh, well, actually, if it's M-A-C, it's Scottish. If it's M small c, like mine, it's yeah. Irish. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's good to know. Yeah, my, my grandparents were Scots-Irish and worked in the Glasgow shipyards. Oh, wow. Oh, I like that. I've been to Glasgow. I like, I like the Scots. Yeah, really, yeah, they, they keep it real, that's for sure. They're, yeah, they're fun. They're a festive bunch. And the women, I hate to say it, the men are much more attractive than the women, so I pulled there, as they say. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I got a lot of action. Yeah, good. Good for yeah, you. Thank you. Get thank with you. Scottish people. Well, you know, that's all I have to. And I'm not a big <laughs> drinker, so, but I tried to, you know, I tried to make merry where I could. So you've written numerous books Mm -hmm. um, of, of, on, on various topics. And one of the, the ones that caught me. So first of all, uh, I want to talk about the Shakespeare one. Cause that's the mm -hmm. one I'm most familiar with. I know you wrote about Joseph Grimaldi, who mm -hmm. was a, a pantomime Harlequin British, mm -hmm. right? Superstar of the Harlequinism, but I'm not as well versed. I know the, the, what's that guy's was the French dude, Marcel Marceau. Yep, yep. You know, and I know the wall and I know the biking, but pantomime is fascinating to me, but I'm not well versed in it. Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. I've always been a fan. Good. I kind of wanted to, to grill you a bit, I know, is, correct me if I'm wrong, the premise of the book is about three days in Shakespeare's life where suddenly his reputation as the greatest writer ever lived was cemented, right? Yeah, although, although three days in his posthumous life. Oh, interesting. Okay, so just right. tell me, give me a little overview. Yeah. Then, okay, and also, can you tell me, has it really been verified that numerous people wrote Shakespeare's work? Like, what was the writing process? Like, really, what was it like? What did they found? Yeah, so, so there's been an enormous amount of research done on this in the last sort of 20 years, and they've used various different approaches from, you know, uh, paleography, handwriting analysis, um, you know, carbon dating, and also um, sort of computer assessments of, of um, linguistic style, you know, sort of literary style, to look for kind of matches and, and um, coherences between other you know, types of writing that are verifiably by one author compared to other works. And it appears that our idea of Shakespeare as the sole author of the vast majority of his works is just incomplete. It's just wrong, right? And it's, it's really kind of a romantic idea that, that so much kind of genius and talent could well out from one person, um, as opposed to a more collaborative sort of workshopped kind of concept of the theatre troupe, which I think is probably more familiar to people who actually are involved in theatre and involved in kind of creative endeavour of any one kind. I mean, you know, look at the credits of any movie and you see that it's directed by and it stars somebody, but that really doesn't tell the story of the collaboration and, and, and the um, sort of joint creation of that particular work, right? And so Shakespeare's the same kind of uh, same kind of case. And I think this speaks to the fact that this is why we don't have a collective works of Shakespeare that's signed by Shakespeare, mm. you know, as a kind of collective work, or indeed any kind of um, document produced during his time that says conclusively, this was written by me and me alone, William Shakespeare. And, and uh, the idea of collaboration was um, fully ingrained in 16th and 17th century theatre, so why shouldn't he have participated in it? You know, there's no reason why he should stand outside as this kind of genius. So, but did um, he, um, was he like the head dude and then he kind of delegated work, kind of like Hans Zimmer that has like 30 composers working for him, but he still right. signed it as by William Shakespeare. He still took the credit, but everybody was just common knowledge that he had his peons writing for him. Well, no, because nobody took credit, right? Because it was um, it was very much like a, a kind of a um, content creation machine. You know, a, a theatre season now in, say, London or in New York will will run from what sort of like the autumn to the spring, right? And you know, in the repertoire, maybe what six plays, 
or something like that in a, in a repertory company, company. In the early modern theatre, they would perform a, play, a new play every three days. And, um, you know, much of that was stock, you know, pre-existing stuff. But they also wrote new stuff all the time because it was the only game in town and people came to the theatre to be entertained and amused. And so they wanted to see new things. You know, this kind of culture of going to see things you know already in a new production or just to kind of venerate the fact that this is a great work of art um, just didn't exist. It was all about novelty. And so I think the comparisons that are often made to against, you know, sort of soap operas and other kinds of long running serial are actually quite germane. I think, I think that is a good, a good analogy to make. So, so when you they know, did but, Hamlet, when they did Hamlet at the Globe, they do mm -hmm. Hamlet and once and then it's done? Or yeah, do other people well, do, Hamlet do Hamlet like yeah, they do Hamlet for a couple of days and then they do something else and then maybe say the Hamlet comes back for a couple of days. In actual fact, that's the standard for theatre repertoire right up until the mid-19th century when things start to change and become a bit more familiar with what we know today. And that's because, you know, audiences change. You know, the audience in the Shakespearean theatre is really quite democratic and it goes from very plebeian people right through the aristocracy, whereas theatre becomes much more bourgeois and reified as we move towards the sort of 19th and 20th century. And they want to genuflect in front of art and feel like they're being very intelligent and fancy by doing it. Whereas, you know, in the 16th and 17th century, people are going to be entertained and then just kind of forget about it. Well, let me ask you a question, because now when I look at Shakespeare, obviously, you know, at least here, it's like the language is complicated, the imagery, you know, you really only see layers upon layers once you analyze it. Does that mm -hmm. imply that the, the plebes, you know, the simpletons, they just had a much more um, wide ranging vocabulary and it was, or did they just experience it on a very simple level? And then there were like different levels of experience or was the average plebe just more well-versed mm -hmm. in that language and yeah. can handle the pentameter or whatever? Right, so I think a bit of both. Uh, real, uh, it's a fantastic question because, um, I mean, ultimately we don't know, but I think, right. I think the preponderance of evidence would point to, to both because remember that this is an aural culture, like it's a culture of listening. Right. Um, you know, we've gone through the Reformation. So all of those kind, all of that um, idea of visual imagery and these churches that were adorned with um, stained glass and mosaic and, and uh, 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 statues of saints and all of these kind of paintings, all of that has been destroyed by iconoclasm. And so now places of worship are very, very plain. And instead of um, sort of veneration being mediated through the eyes, it's now all about sermonizing and listening. Right, because in 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 Catholic liturgy, you listen to the sermon in Latin, or listen to the liturgy in in Latin, while you're kind of absorbing the awe-inspiring environment right. in which your worship is taking place. In Protestantism, which which kind of you know, in the Reformation immediately preceded Shakespeare, you get all that, you get away from that, and you you have the liturgy in the vernacular. So you listen to these sermons that last literally for hours. The sermons that would take place at St. Paul's Cross in London could literally take five hours. And oh, some wow. Would Good night. Continuously. Plus, they would speak from, you know, the 16th century vernacular Bible, which is a very rich, archaic, strange, provocative um, okay. language. So, so, you know, the common person would be very attuned to that. So they would be used to listening. But then also, if you look at a Shakespeare's play, it, it's full of lots of different textures, right? One minute it's Hamlet's soliloquy, uh, you know, but the next it's kind of clowns like farting around on stage. Right. So that kind of gives us the broad comedy that satisfies the, the most exactly. base, the broadest de denominator. Exactly. There's something for everybody. So if you, if you are an aristocrat and you've had a classical education and you get all the references to sort of Virgil and Homer, then good for you. And if you right. ha haven't, because you know, you're a turnip farmer, then look, here's some people fighting on stage. Isn't that fun? Were most of those people at the time, and I'm going to ask you about the reformation because I'm a I'm ignorant. So I just kind of, I need to be, I need to kind of inform myself, but were most of those people, the, the farmers and stuff, I'm assuming they didn't read and write or was literacy pr relatively high percentage? In, yeah. in 
So literacy in 16th century London is really starting to take off, but I think we can assume that they're, that, you know, that even if somebody is literate, their literary literacy would be very basic in, in, in the sort of non-educated classes. But what's happening is you're getting the rise of a middle class, right? An urban, uh, an urban set of people who maybe are, are not, uh, don't come with family wealth, who are beginning to enter professions like the law. And so that is pushing literacy along. Or maybe you've got a lot of sons, you know, and one's going to inherit anything, everything, another's entered the church, another has become a soldier, and then you get one who's a lawyer. So, you know, right. people, you know, that idea of kind of moving towards the, the professions as opposed to just being an aristocrat or a peasant is starting to develop and the middle class grows. I like that. that, that that's nice. Um, in terms of the actors, though, were the actors obviously, were some of them illiterate but l learned their lines through oral means? Or did, mm -hmm. can we assume that the actors all knew how to read and they would get a script, they'd get the folio from, from Bill, and yeah. Bill would be like, you know, learn this today? So it's really interesting. I think they were, they could read, but I think probably they did learn a lot um, through memorization. Um, there's uh, there are no extant um, full performance scripts from Shakespeare's mm. theatre, but there are these uh, very interesting um, excerpts that that look like they would have been used by the actors that had the cue at the beginning, the entrance cue, and right. then your bit, and then your exit cue. And so because this was a repertory theater in which you're having to learn new parts all wow. the time, you're continually learning, you don't learn the whole play, right? right. You just know that when they say, you know, my Lord of Norfolk, you know, good morrow, then right, okay, that's me. So I'll do my right. bit now. And, <clears throat> and, and I think what it also, you know, there's a lot, there's a real um, reliance on genre in the Shakespeare play, you know, of, of comedies, histories, tragedies, yeah. um, pastoral, things like that. And so, you know, and there's a lot of um, overlap of different types of characters. And in the Shakespearean company, you'd have specialists. So, you know, you, you have the clown, you'd have the, um, you know, the leading man, the tragedian, you'd have the young romantic lead, you know, the person who plays Romeo. Um, and then you'd have the, you know, the men and the boys who played the women. Um, so there were so no women in the cast ever. There were no it was women. all dudes. All male, yeah. Not all much has changed. Okay. Right, yeah. Exactly. And and the um and the you know the the women were played so Juliet would be played by a prepubescent boy, right. somebody whose voice. Or Gwyneth Paltrow, Paltrow, either one. Right. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And so you know you think okay, what kind of play is this? All right, so history play. You know, what kind of character am I? Oh, I'm, you know, the rebel lieutenant. Okay, so like I've forgotten my actual lines, but I can recall some lines from a play that's very similar. And it's in pentameter, so that I know it has to go da dun da dun da dun da dun da dun I'll just fake it until I get off and then I'll try and, you know, I'll check my lines and come back on and get back into the play. So it's really good for actors because it sort of supports them, right? They can improvise within a structure because some of the conditions of the performance are really well established. That's So I get, yeah, people don't know the difference. I wonder, did Bill direct a lot of these things or... Or did he get pissed off when his words, you know, because I know like sitcom writers, they're very precious about their words. Okay. You're on a sitcom and you make one wrong word on a joke, you'll get fired and replaced with some other actor from Idaho. But I don't know, was Bill more like relaxed and he's, you know what I mean? Is it like, okay, whatever, it works. Like fake it till you make it. I don't know. I have no idea. And okay, I don't even enough. know if the role of, I mean, I don't think the role of director is, is has evolved, right? Yeah. As a single choreographing individual. I think that's very difficult to say. And I think we, we go more to the collaborative piece. Um, so who even knows how that really happens? Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about Hamlet is when Hamlet gives advice to the players when he's setting his trap for his uncle, um, he, uh, he says to the clowns, stick to the script, don't start making stuff up and going for laughs. Right, so this obviously, this obviously is a thing that the writers are kind of annoyed that the clowns come on and they right. don't stick to the script. Right. And now they've got an audience and so they're playing to the groundlings and now the whole thing's like, you know, it's 20 minutes long and they're still going. So, um, so yeah, so it's I think- It's so people... interesting to me. You know, what you said was interesting in, in a way that you're saying that there was such a need for content mm -hmm. that it's kind of amazing that the content was of such high 
caliber, right? Like, you know, we're, I guess you're lucky. Cause again, I know Shakespeare didn't do it alone, but he is the brains behind the operation. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming, mm -hmm. um, unless somebody really didn't get enough credit and there's another dude they're going to discover in like 10 years ago, here's Joe, you know, mm -hmm. but, but these days there's supposedly a need for content, but so saturated, but it's diluted the quality of the content and our mm -hmm. standards have gone down as opposed to gone up in a way, you yeah. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, I've just, I've been, I have Netflix, I have Hulu, I have Amazon prime. And some days I cannot find a single fucking thing to watch. And I'm yeah. like, what yeah. does that mean? Mm -hmm. So I just love that because I guess, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I don't know if you do more comparative literature as well. And I don't know, tell me if it, Moliere came before or after, but in terms of co comparative uh, theater playwrights in Europe at the time, did anyone even reach Shakespeare's caliber or was theater not as, as demanded there? You know what I mean? What was going on in the rest of Europe at that time? Yeah, so the, the English theatre scene is more advanced than in other countries at, at the time Shakespeare is writing. So every, every European country has something going on, but really nothing to the, to the same degree. And I think it's really, what's really interesting in it is, about it is that Shakespeare's theatre is a commercial theatre, right? It's for profit. Okay. Um, and it's trying to maximize profit by maximizing appeal. So that's why it has this, you know, it, it speaks to the, you know, the plebs as well as the, the aristocrats. Whereas in Europe, a lot of the theater revolves around uh, court culture. So aristocratic courts and is um, conspicuously learned. Right. So it, it's always talking to um, humanist traditions and reaching back to ancient Greek and Roman sort of mythology and archetypes to show, look, look, look how sort of classically pure our aesthetic is. You know, isn't this edifying? You know, meanwhile, the local despot is sort of, you know, boiling people in oil in the square outside, you know, <laughs> while you're kind of watching this incredible. As you do. Right. Yeah, exactly. So so it's different because it's a commercial theater. And I think that's really, really important. And that drives a lot of the innovation. So they were still doing like the Bacchae, you know what I mean? And they're doing, yeah, well, yeah, like sort of they're just doing the old, the good old Greek tragedies and stuff. Yeah, right. And they're sort of updating them and rewriting them and, you know, sort of remixing them in these ways. But it comes out of a sort of education tradition in which they're really trying to show, you know, how incredibly civilized they are, right? Whereas right. You know, that kind of sense of conspicuous civility does not really exist in Shakespeare. That's not what he's trying to do. It's interesting. I wonder if, and again, I wish I had more knowledge in terms of what, you know, like that parallel existence, like why certain cultures develop, because mm -hmm. I feel like music and classical compositions and the Beethovens and the Mozarts, they were not in England. They right. were in Germany and Austria. And then maybe the French were busy developing the croissant, but, you know, or I don't know, but into, and I hate to tackle you with this, but in terms of that classical music, is that parallel in, in terms of period or, or people like Beethoven and Mozart, they came way before? Yeah, so, you know, Shakespeare's, um, you know, sort of, sort of dies in the early 17th century and sort of the classical, move, classical movement that you're speaking of is very much sort of early 18th. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. so mid 18th. So, so yeah, it's quite a bit later, but you know, uh, towards the very end of Shakespeare's life in Europe that you would, you would see the very early origins of opera and stuff. Oh, okay. Like that. okay. Yeah, so that, that kind of Baroque music is beginning and that doesn't really happen in England um, in any way. In fact, in fact, um, uh, post restoration. So sort of late 17th, early 18th century, it becomes something that is highly regarded, but they always have to import content. They got to import the other. Yeah. Right. yeah and pay them an enormous amount of money. So there's a real kind of audience appetite for it, but there aren't any really domestic people um, who have quite the same reputations. It's, it's, it's like, um, you know, you go if you, in order to have kind of credibility, maybe in say fashion or something, you got to get someone from Milan or Paris. Yeah, or of course. I hate the guys in Milan are cocky. Sorry, I just <laughs> wanted to mention that they are. You've been to Milan, you walk around, they won't even look you in the eye. I know, and basically, it's it's the Detroit of Italy too. That's they should, you know. Right, they look down. It's so, and it's the boy. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder now. Do you think that has something to do with the fact? And maybe again, I'm wrong. It sounds like. Obviously, a lot of the classical music had to do with 
odes to God and the church and mm-hmm. being sanctioned by the right, the Catholic right, that lu- mm-hmm. that lux kind of thing. And in England, it sounds like, and I, you want I want you to break down the the reformation for me, but that people were moving away maybe from religion or didn't play as much a part, and it wasn't that kind of Catholic empire overtaking mm-hmm. it. So people they weren't commissioning musicians to write amazing pieces for our Lord. Is that yep. accurate? Yep. Yeah, that is. I mean, essentially what happens in the Reformation, and you know, the Reformation is is a political move as much as a religious one. Is but, that Martin uh, Luther? Yeah, Martin Luther in Germany, but it's Henry VIII in, in okay. England, of course, you know, who who breaks from the Roman Catholic Church to set up the Church of England. And, and um, you know, English monarchs ever since have been the head of the Church of England. So Queen Elizabeth II is the head of the Church of England currently. Okay. Um, but it feeds into that general um, uh, Reformation movement that we get across sort of Middle Europe at this time. And like I said, you know, it kind of, it, it looks to a, a much more kind of plain and unadorned um, form of worship. Um, Which I like personally, I like. The yeah. argument is that it, it takes away from, you know, external distractions, which are often taken for spirituality, right? So, you know, I, I can weep in front of some kind of, um, you know, statue of the Virgin Mary and, and um, you know, sort of pray the rosary and, and leave sort of little votive candles in front of this thing. Um, but in, in a kind of sort of strict Reformation culture, that would be considered idolatry, right? That would be considered mm. worship of the statue rather than the statue being um, merely a symbol of something that's beyond it. So they strip all that away and they, they want, um, you know, the idea is that everybody should be able to internalize the world, word of God and have a much more kind of private devotion, right? So it, it actually is very kind of um, uh, generative of a British mentality moving forward i think where people are very private about any kind of religious uh, belief they might have generally speaking and you know a little bit embarrassed to talk about it it's not really polite to ask about somebody's spirituality it might be now definitely not in la that's all yeah, people fucking talk right, about right exactly. they just come out with it and introduce you <laughs> to their guru and all of a sudden you know you're eating you know the... all of a sudden you're in a wild wild country yeah, yeah exactly so so you know it's um yeah, well, it's it, interesting it, it, that you're saying that. I never really thought about that because I, I think British culture in general is unadorned in a mm-hmm. way, right? I mean, it's it's not known as cuisine or fashion capital in any stretch, right? right. It's still right. kind of that meat and potatoes, even with people's looks. I mean, you get a good suit on Savile Row, I guess, but you know what right. I mean? It's very, mm-hmm. there's something very stark about it and also emotionally right i mean the, the cliche is that brits are not over overtly emotional people mm-hmm. which i'm always amazed at how great the british actors are mm-hmm. i'm like you know well, where are they tapping that into you know what i mean but as a culture it's not you know you go to a funeral i imagine it's, it's a quiet affair and mm-hmm. you go to italy and they'll be wailing or anywhere else and you know so i wonder i never really connected that to the religious aspect of it of of how you know how elaborate can we uh adorn ourselves for the lord you know what i mean and again personally when i go into an amazing if i go into notre dame and i did say that correctly mm-hmm. or i go into even say paul there is that feeling of i'm closer to god somehow because it is such a striking right you know mm-hmm. but i also like the in judaism when i've been to a bunch of uh, synagogues and not the ones in new york they're kind of big and fancy but Judaism is, of course, anti-visual. It's a it's a mm-hmm. religion of sound, and you can't mm-hmm. do anything visual, right? You can't mm-hmm. put any image of the Lord, and so the any place can be a, a synagogue. It can be right. a hut, and yeah. I like that too. And there's something beautiful, and it sounds like what you're saying is the reformate that was tapping into that a bit. That it, yeah, you know. yeah, I think so, and I I think you're absolutely right. You know, there there is. I mean, it may have changed because you know I haven't been in, living in Britain for a long time, but right. you know, certainly there was this sense of understatement continually, right? Plus this, um, you know, real directive not to draw undue attention to oneself. Mm. One doesn't want to be the the center of attention. Plus, you know, emoting is really frowned upon. Because it makes everybody feel extremely awkward and nobody, right. nobody likes to be kind of confronted by raw emotion. So, yeah, I, and I think, you know, I think a lot of, you know, the, you see this re- replicated in other new, Northern European cultures too, like in Scandinavia and, and other things, you know, there is that, there is that kind of... Um, Reserved. 
Yeah, reserve, yeah. you know, a little bit yeah. of repression. I mean, maybe the British actors are good because it's the only outlet they get. That's it. You know, so. <laughs> Everybody should be an actor. Just get yeah. it out. Right. It's so interesting. I mean, I do. I, that's what I do think America. I mean, I know we like to talk about our feelings and we're very open and some cultures see us as fake. Um, mm -hmm. And I try and explain to people that it's just a general, almost childlike enthusiasm mm -hmm. that American, even as adults have, you know, you meet men here in their fifties and sixties, you can still imagine them as a college kid. They're like children. Right, 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 right. And you don't yeah. see that as much in Europe. I feel like the adulthood is, is presented differently. I mean, yeah. it's the man child, that eternal man child, which is the star of every sitcom is completely acceptable way of being an adult human, even if you have three kids and, you know, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, people here are open about therapy. I remember I went to Germany uh, a few years back. They're still ashamed of, of talking about therapy. Like, therapy's not accepted there. And I'm right. like, I know that Freud came, isn't he Austrian? But I'm like, Jesus, mm. like, some things feel so, but in other ways, they're so evolved. Yeah. No, it's really fascinating, you know, make, sort of think about those comparisons a lot. Obviously, you know, having this kind of sort of dual nationality. Yeah. Um, I think what's really, you know, you know, one of the things that British people often think about Americans is that they're superficial, right? Yeah. But I, I actually quite enjoy somebody uh, asking me or inviting me to have a good day. I don't have a problem with that. I well, think I'd rather like, someone be fake nice than than, than not yeah, nice. Or just like outright rude. You know, I was in yeah. Britain, um, you know, a couple of months ago before um, COVID, obviously, and. Um, you know, I was finishing a transaction in a, in a, in a supermarket and I just, without thinking about it, said, thank you. Have a nice day. And she went, Oh God, I'll try. Right. <laughs> Salty. Salty you know, bitch just, working at boots. Yeah, right. Oh my God. <laughs> I got to say though, I mean, look, I don't know. I always, um, I don't appreciate, uh, honesty if it's done without sensitivity. I know people are like, I'm just being honest. I'm like, no, you're just being yeah, rude yeah, and mean. Worst, yeah. I don't need that. People tout and New Yorkers are like, when I went to London in November, I was shocked at how impolite people were. Cause again, I had that cliche of British being polite, but mm -hmm. the average person, nobody held a door open or I held yeah. a door open for someone. They never said, thank you. Mm -hmm. That was very jarring to me. And maybe it's just mm -hmm. London, but I'm like this British polite thing maybe is a thing of the past. Maybe it is a Downton Abbey situation. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's the there's the sort of overly and affected politeness, which is really actually a you know just a circuitous way of saying fuck you. Right. So you know that that's still an art form, but the yeah. um, uh, but yeah, I don't I don't know. Big cities tend to be quite brusque anyway, don't they? Nobody. I don't wants mind to that, but if I'm holding the door open for you, don't make me kick yeah. you in the nuts. You know what Correct. I mean? Just say thank you. It's so yeah. effortless. I always <laughs> look. I meet a lot of salty people. It's always easier mm. for me. What's that saying? It takes only like two muscles to smile and 3,000 muscles to frown. Right. You know, one of those little things. It's always easier for me to be nice to someone than, than rude. It takes more energy for me to be rude. So the people that the rudeness comes naturally, I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. But I always prefer, I hate passive aggressive. And so mm -hmm. I always try and tackle which cultures. And I feel like maybe European cultures can be more passive aggressive where they really won't speak you know, mm -hmm. what they think about you and they'll talk about you behind your back. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like America as a whole, people are all about let's talk and communicate and, yep. and let's, you know, it, let's air our grievances. And I like that. I feel like anywhere in the world, I can't think of another place in the world where people are that, you know, communicative in that way. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? I don't know. Um, now you're working on a book about comedy, yep. correct? Are you ready to put out a six part epic series, which I'd like a box set if you can ship that to me. Oh. Um, so, yeah, so that's right. So, so with um, a, a friend and colleague called Eric Weiss from Trinity University in Dublin, we, we edited a six volume history of comedy wow. that goes from, you know, classical antiquity through to the present. Um, and I wrote a book on comedy. Uh, I guess the first edition must have come out about 15 years ago. Amazing. I'm working on, an, on another thing now that's sort of more about humor and about how we can use humor in our lives in all kinds of ways that might serve to highlight our shared humanity and, and, and create some bonds because we are in a really quite depressingly uh, divided space in, 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 our, in our civic life right now. And it would be nice to, to reach for some tools that we all have innately, right? Every human right. being can laugh. I mean, one of the, one of the really interesting things is that, you know, even children, um, 
uh, who are born congenitally deaf and blind laugh, right? They don't learn it off other people. It comes innately from within. And, and um, you know, that's an amazing tool. And, and we all know how good we feel about it. And, and it's infectious. And um, it's, there's, there are ways in which one can deploy humor uh, to build bridges, to grow, to bond, to sort of enrich one's life. And I'm sort of exploring some of the science of that and some of the cultural practices around that. I was going to say, it's like fascinating to me because you always look at what parts of the brain are activated when you laugh and what evolutionary purpose mm -hmm. did laughter serve? Now, I'm sure that, and I'd like to t touch also upon your series in terms of the antiquity and where mm -hmm. humor began and that sense of... Um, you know, efficacy in the world or, you know, mm -hmm. or connection, right? I mean, sharing mm -hmm. a laugh, right? I mean, I'm on a dating site and every fucking idiot says, I love to laugh, looking for someone who loves. I'm like, who doesn't love to laugh? But I guess some people <laughs> don't. But I'm like, really? You love to laugh? Okay, that's helpful. Right. Um, but it's also amazing to me how it is a sense. I mean, there is a sense of humor. And mm -hmm. when you encounter someone who does not have a sense of humor, and I'm not talking about someone who doesn't like Jerry Seinfeld or doesn't mm -hmm. like whatever, they don't get it. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's a chip missing in their brain. And I do wonder what areas of the brain are activated. Cause I I'm fascinated by that functional MRI studies. And I don't know if you're mm -hmm. tapping into that at all. Mm -hmm. yep. You know, I, um, this is just unrelated, but how I got into that. I, uh, I spent time at Stanford with a bunch of people doing that fMRI mm -hmm. research. This is a long time ago. Cause I was fascinated by it. Mm -hmm. And I met a scientist who worked on olfactory research his name is noam sobel and he found this study got a lot of uh, attention he's he found out that men when they smell when they smell a woman's tears their mm -hmm. testosterone levels go down which was fascinating to me when they right. smell it so it's not even a thing it's the smell mm -hmm. that you're not even aware of mm -hmm. and that somehow lowers testosterone levels i guess lower sector maybe softens the i don't know but i'm wondering mm -hmm. what about humor what other parts of the of the system are affected? Yeah. So did you look into that yet, or? Yeah, so you know, there's lots of studies that show that it has um, uh, it has incredibly be beneficial effects on the sort of pharmacology of the body. You know, mm -hmm. it, it it produces all kinds of um, stimulating and rewarding chemicals in us. It's good for the heart and the lungs for cardiovascular health. Yeah. it's good for mood but then not all kinds of humor are equal right there are right. different styles of humor and you know humor that's what's called affiliative which is the humor that tries to share a joke with people and use it as a means of sort of greasing social interactions and everybody getting along that's very positive as is um self-enhancing humor which is humor that um sort of directed at oneself but you know allows you to see the funnier side of things and to kind of you know maybe distance oneself from events a little and sort of see them as right. the absurd side of life the cosmic joke that we're all a part of right? Right, so, right right so that's very healthy too and sort of correlates with sort of um lower levels of anxiety stress and depression but then aggressive humor, right? Humor that's cynical and dark and aimed at attacking people, which is a really big part of humor, right? You, yes. know, you know, a lot of humor is weaponized and, right. um, you know, we've all done it, whether we've been, you know, ripping a strip off somebody or bullying them and making fun of them or watching comedians who are really kind of attack comedians who are very good at that and have made that into an art form. Um, that correlates with um, with the opposite, right? With um, increased sort of feelings of isolation and depression and anxiety, as does self-denigrating humor, that kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm so useless, um, you know, nothing ever goes right for me. I'm just a big waste of space type joking. So oh, wow. people need to kind of, um, need to kind of become a little bit more aware of their humor style and sort of see if they can cultivate those more positive ones because the, the kind of, you know, in a very utilitarian, sense that the, the benefits that accrue to them are very real and um, you know there's quite a lot of research in social sciences and in evolutionary science to back this up so I think it's worth definitely worth more exploration and kind of that's where I'm going right now trying to find out a lot more about that that's fascinating I wonder if at some point you know especially American culture we're so obsessed with wellness mm -hmm. where certain comics are going to get a wellness quotient you know what I mean? So yeah, if you go on Netflix, right. you're going to be watching like a feel-good comic is better for your heart and lungs. Right. But don't watch Jim Norton 
or whatever, because he's going to, you know, heighten your eggs. It's so funny. But I wonder, you know, I guess it depends on the person. Like there's certain thrill seekers that like danger, right? And like mm -hmm. people that are, that are doing a death defying feats or free soloing or whatever the fuck. Now, obviously I can't imagine that's good for the system, but their brain is wired where their endorphins and their meaning in life, right? And I guess mm -hmm. sense of meaning is what gives people also mm -hmm. joy, even if it's stressful, right? Like mm -hmm. having kids. Couples right. with kids aren't necessarily happier than couples right. without kids, but they have a sense of meaning. So I feel like it's a bigger gestalt in terms of mm -hmm. what's meaningful. And and so I think it, it's much more nuanced than that, right? But I, I wonder if people are just wired differently. People love that. There's a lot of comics that, that are hate insult comics or watching a roast. Like mm -hmm. how do you, when I watch a roast, I get extremely uncomfortable. You know yep. what I mean? But, and sometimes you can tell that even the object of the roast isn't enjoying it, but there's an addiction there mm -hmm. to, to someone's being put down. It makes your vulnerability seem less yeah. threatening, right? You're like, okay. That's right. Well, it's scapegoating, right? Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the ancient ritual of scapegoating is, you know, we see it, um, you know, God makes it very clear to Moses in Leviticus that, you know, you get two goats, right. one you sacrifice on the altar, the other you fill with the sins of the Israelites and you send it into the desert far away, right? Containing those uh, and, um, you know, quarantining those, right. those sins. So that, that's really, I think, what, the, what the, the roasts are doing, right? They're scapegoating. Like that person has to go through every indignity and humiliation so that I don't have to. And, yeah, um, I you mean, know, yeah, I and again, it's 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 that feeling of insults in general, like what makes you feel better about yourself or feel that you're not alone. I mean, I look at uh, people watching a stoning, right? That you know, I mean, I think of Monty Python, who could make that funny, but it's not; it still goes on. Or what right. is that public spectacle? And even this true crime shit, which I can't stand. Right. Right. What is that enjoyment? in in watching you know or that fascination with a woman getting raped or how is this considering like that's a part of the brain that i'm still trying to wrap my head around mm -hmm. where i think at the end of the day we're so damaged that this has become our healing process is right. like literally that schadenfreude there's got to mm -hmm. be a better way you know right. um, i have to look into the abyss i can't avoid it i can't look away Right. Yeah. Yes. I've never been to a stoning, actually. Have you? <laughs> I've, I've tried to. I've been invited to a bunch. I've, right. just, I've been busy. I was, you know, my calendar, yeah. my dance, dance card is full. Yeah. Um, right. But they still go on. I mean, whatever. It's it, that's fascinating. It's like stopping by a car wreck, right? I mean, it's that. Mm -hmm. What is that? Um, but we're all trying to survive. You know, I remember um, things that I viewed as negative. I learned what I read that book by what's his name, uh, Noah Harari. You've okay. all Noah Harari, what he read, Sapiens was the last one or whatever. I started uh, yeah, reading. Noah, one of those, yes, right. So, ideas, yes. Where um, there was uh, that thing about gossip, and mm -hmm. I've always shied away from gossip. I like a good little gossip, like if mm -hmm. someone's fucking their trainer, you know what I mean? I like to hear about that stuff or whatever mm -hmm. kind of deal. But gossip had an evolutionary purpose where people could find out other people's reputations and whether they were useful or helpful to society, right? Like mm -hmm. you gossip about the locksmith not being good. You're not going to use him. Mm -hmm. Now we've taken it to a whole new level, I guess, but you know, we have entire magazines devoted to it and websites, right. but I just wonder if that's where it came from. And it just got, you know, we've, just gets we've out of devolved. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We devolved. I don't yeah. know. Um, well, I, think, I think we do have a kind of uh, asymmetry between sort of evolution culturally and then evolution techno technologically so you know I, a, an idea like gossip which may indeed have had a function at a previous age you know now becomes extremely accelerated given media yeah you know maybe that's what's going on i don't know no i don't know um i was going to ask you something really profound and i'm blanking on it god damn it oh do you also looked into why certain cultures and i know that we kind of know the adage that cultures people that have suffered have evolved a sense of humor the irish the jews you mm -hmm. know it's like why do certain cultures are able to laugh at themselves in order to cope um mm -hmm. and why so certain cultures have not i mean the germans are not known for their their witty banter uh the french like their kind of pratfalls i've never been a fan of that but you know in terms of that intellectual kind of Mm -hmm. verbal you know have you looked into that at all or is that something that interests you oh yeah that is and i think that will be a portion of of uh, what i do when i when i eventually get there but the um yeah there's there's an enormous um i think a, a sort of rich uh sort of history and legacy as you say of using humor as a coping mechanism yeah 
as a tool of resilience and as a way of reintegrating experience and trauma and kind of, uh, you know, re-narrativizing that or repackaging it. So, you know, I mean, one thing that I find um, sort of unbelievable and shocking and absurd is the fact that the concentration camps in the Second World War had uh, these variety troops, you know, in which... Um, yeah you know, the, the, the prisoners would um, put on shows for one another and they would sing and they would joke. And, you know, in, in many respects, it was just a way of getting through the horror of the day to day. But also there was a form of resistance there too, right? In making, in, in joking being something that really the Nazis didn't understand because mm. that's obviously a humorless ideology, right? It's an ideology that doesn't contain any compassion or an expanded sense of humanity. Right. And so the kind of the ability to joke, which does require a certain displacement of the ego and a sort of a transcendence from the self is something that's not incorporated in that ideology, right? And, and so... And so I think, you know, and you can see that, you know, I mean, Mel Brooks, right, began, began doing Hitler impressions almost immediately after the Second World War in the, in the Catskills on the kind of Borch Belt circuit. And he did it because, you know, he was um, uh, targeting and directly trying to sort of humiliate and ridicule, ridicule the Germans. And, um, you know, it became it became sort of a lifelong sort of passion for him, right? And something yeah. that he continued to do. And he would um, he would never joke about the Holocaust, but he would always joke at the, at the expense of the Germans. And it was it was a form of revenge. Revenge, taking your power back. I mean, all of right. that. All of that. I think yeah. it's also you know one thing that they have found. It seems you know in terms of like Buddhist cultures and this idea of mm -hmm. happiness comes from the compassionate observer, where you kind of step outside. Mm -hmm. your experience and people that are prone to extreme emotions are because they get caught up in it, right? There's, they're not right. able to step away. They're yes. not able to go, oh, observe me. Whenever I go to therapy, like, well, take a minute and observe your feelings, right? That's what people mm -hmm. journal, right? It, it, it right. removes you. And that's how antidepressants work in a way. They bypass your kind of limbic system and you stay up here. So mm -hmm. you're kind of have a more of a cerebral approach to what you're going through mm -hmm. as opposed to being in that fight or flight you know, right. PTSD survival mode. So I have no doubt that humor, like you said, it lets you step outside for a minute and take control over it, take ownership of it, as opposed to being mm -hmm. in it. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, I mean, this is some the way in which gallows humor works to an extent, right? And and you see people who work in ER or who are EMTs yes, or first yes. responders, you know, they use a certain amount of gallows humor because it allows them to... Um, distance themselves momentarily from the immediacy of the situation and allow their training to kick in. Right. right? Because if, you, if you're sort of on the site of something horrible, um, you're human and can be horrified from that. So, you know, if there's a distancing, if there's something that will put a bit of distance between you and that and then allow you to do what you need to do, then humor can actually be a very effective tool to get that done. I, I can't imagine. I think about, yeah, EMTs, I think about, you know, pediatric oncologists. Yeah. They have to be a humorless bunch because I can't imagine you being right. able to really observe what you're doing yeah, and still do it. You know what I mean? Fact. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. It's like you have to be almost on the spectrum to be into something so much and be able to accomplish it. Because if you take a minute and step outside of what you're doing, you're, you're yeah. doomed, you know? It'd be interesting to know, wouldn't it? Because I think that kind of that, you know, the discipline of mental compartmentalization must be a really important thing to develop and something that I don't think I can appreciate in my work uh, line of work. Right, right. Because I'm sure, you know, people like that have senses of humor and joke with their friends. It's just when you show up to the work, it's a whole different environment. Yeah, and I don't think you can joke about your work in that situation. Like, you know, at what point does it come too much? You know, yeah, it's yeah. like, mm -hmm. you know, I had two friends during at the beginning of the pandemic, they're both ER doctors. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were both dealing with shit. One of them was really in a, in a public hospital in Brooklyn that was just devastating. And I, I interviewed him at the outset. And, you know, I even tried to like, light, like he was in a zone. He was just right. devastated on the inside. I mean, he was overwhelmed. He's like, I walk out of one room and I have three patients die within two minutes of me coming back. They were overwhelmed, right. people in the mm -hmm. hallways. And my other friend uh, was also in the ER, was, it would joke to me about how they were expecting all these patients and nobody was coming and they were like, you know, exchanging rhubarb pie recipes, right? But I mean, it's like a different, you know, there was something, there was relief there, but it was just, yeah. and he, he was worn out. I mean, you know, and I felt like it is a person, if you're an empath to any extent, 
And that's why a lot of these doctors, I've, I'm sorry, they don't have a lot of bedside manner because I think if they really tapped into their em, em, you know, empathetic side, they couldn't mm-hmm. function. Yeah, it'd be too hard. They right. couldn't function, you know, like, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. So when is this book slated to like, you're, you know, are you working on your own? Or do you have a partner for this one? No, I'm writing this one um, early stages. So, you know, watch this space. I don't like to really make promises about delivery. As Douglas Adams used to say, um, you know, I love deadlines because I like the sound they make as they whoosh past. (laughs) 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 Whee! Yeah. (laughs) Have you, who are your favorite comics right now? Oh, that's such a good question because I... um, you know, I used to be kind of in, in the world of stand-up comedy back okay. in, in, in the UK, at least okay. in, a, in, in a sort of a, you know, sort of second or third hand way. And, and so I was very current, but I, I haven't been to a stand-up comedy club maybe for about a year and a half. And before that, maybe 15 years. And um, I, so, so I'm, you know, I'm mostly watching TV right. and I, what I'm really enjoying is the kind of renaissance of dramedy that we have now right so so you know there there've been a number of really good shows where you know and things like better things would be an example right of right right yeah yeah you yeah. know it has a humorous tone but it can also be quite dark yeah and of course serious. like insecure that's another show exactly. but in terms of pure stand-ups because i yeah. personally i got to be honest with you besides like the Chappelle's of the world mm-hmm. the new comics the people 40 and under I so cannot relate. I, I don't know why certain people are doing so well in their hits and they're selling out colleges across the country. And I watch their sets and I'm like, am I not get like, what am I not getting here? Right. And is it that the comedy has changed or is it that you've heard it all before? I mean, I feel like there's too many. I feel like Netflix has mm-hmm. 90 million standups. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know what it is. I think maybe I'm getting older. I, I don't relate, but it all seems, yeah, and again, I have seen it all before. I feel like it's it's like fashion, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, then I liked, you know, someone, when Hannah Gadsby came along, everyone was like, oh, it's different. It's not stand-up. It's a one-person show. Like, you know, I think people are thirsting for comedy that does feel fresh. And I, yeah, maybe I haven't encountered that. It seems a lot of, yeah. like, yeah, know, skilled. I, they're skilled, I, but I don't, I'm not feeling like, whoa. Yeah, I, I, I think I, you know, I think I, I, I agree with you there. I find that, um, you know, after I sort of stopped um, associating so much with stand-up comedy and sort of moved to the States and did different things, I found it very hard to watch, actually, because, you know, A, there was a kind of sense like, you know, what's coming because you hear, you know, you know, the rhythm and you know, the structure, you know, how to write a joke, even if your jokes weren't necessarily so great. Right. Um, And so, you know, you, you, you can hear the setup and you and you know, the punch is about to come. Um, but also, I don't know, there were, you know, there was just, you have your, you have your own comedy idols and then everybody seems like a kind of weak comparison to that. So maybe it is a generational thing and they're selling out, they're selling out colleges now because these are the, the, the first exposure younger people have had. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Maybe I need to be less snooty about it. Maybe Mm -hmm. just like anything, there's the meat and potatoes and you got the comics that, it's a good energy and they're there to make people laugh and you're watching people laughing. And then there are the artists, right. you know, where you're like, okay, they take it to a whole new level. And again, I think that Chappelle is so great because he always weaves in social commentary. Yeah. And it's not just about having sex with his wife or, mm-hmm. or r- race difference. You know what I mean? Like right, in New York, right, right, a lot right. of the humor would be like a black comic making fun of white people or mm-hmm. whatever it may be. You know what I mean? Um, taking it to a, to another level. So maybe I need yeah. to fucking relax. It's not like yeah. I'm selling out colleges anywhere. So I need to <laughs> eat a piece of humble pie, yeah. but I can still criticize, right? We can always be a critic. Right. I see no problem with that. Exactly. Um, any questions or concerns for me, Andrew, before I release you to your bookcase? What, I mean, what, what's the hair care routine and, and how difficult is that? Do you spend a lot of time? I don't. It, this is what's so brilliant about the cut. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's self-sufficient. Um, it's yeah. it's defies gravity. It just kind of stays there. This is getting a little stringy. I do yeah. have to. Um, I'm concerned. I don't have. Pro- I need to get a hair mask. They sell hair masks because my hair is getting dry. And okay. Brittle. Um, right, 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 right. But I like it. It makes it's it's really what is that party in the front, business in the back, or whatever the business in the back part. This is party all over. Right. Um, <laughs> and it reminds me of who I am. You know what I mean? It reminds right. me I'm different. I feel like I need to remind myself that sometimes, especially yeah. now when we're all in this blob of uniformity. 
in this common well, you know, and, and like and like my middle name, it kind of grounds you in a certain kind of place and time, right? Thank so you. It keeps you real. Well, it's also people have preconceived notions. When they hear that I read, they're astounded. That's why I brand myself as a Southern intellectual. Do you know what I mean? They're like, oh, you're like Joe Dirt and you live. I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, by the way. Uh, are your books all available on uh, Jeff Bezos's empire? Yeah, I think anywhere that books are sold, which is basically one place you can get them. Yeah, I'd like to go. There's a great bookstore here in Los Angeles that I like, Skylight Books. Oh, yeah. Skylight. Mm -hmm. I like that place. Yeah. Um, you know, also, the, the San Francisco airport also has an amazingly good bookshop. I'm sure they do. It's strange. Um, but yeah, one of the best I've been in for a while. What's that one called? City Lights. City Lights. That's the Kiriwaki yeah. one, right? Yeah. yeah, that's the that's the kind of beat poet one, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's fun. It's fun. My favorite bookstore is in Portland. I used to love the Strand, too, in New York. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but the, in Portland, there's also, I think it's the largest used bookstore in the country. So that place is a mecca. Oh, okay. right. I love that. Yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah, yeah. there's something about being in a bookstore, even if I'm not reading, just being mm -hmm. enveloped by it is just so enticing. Um, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. You buy more books than you read because you hope that by osmosis, they're going to have an impact on you, right? Sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the problem, as I was saying earlier, before you came on, I was doing my little monologue that um, I, I usually read a book. I bought The Blind Watchmaker, but then uh -huh. I read a chapter and then I put it back on the shelf. I'm t I don't even put on the nightstand to keep up appearances. So right, half the books right. in my bookshelf. I mean, have you read every book in your bookshelf behind no you? Chance, no, I mean, yeah, I'd be, so I'd be surprised nice. if I was kind of, uh, you know, above 15%, to be honest. That's yeah. They feel I, good. They make just, you feel good. You know, and I'm, and I'm a literature professor. So, you know, <laughs> not many people admit to this. Can I take one of your courses? Can I audit? Yeah. Although I don't teach that much because I'm doing my administrative stuff, but oh. uh, you know, next time I might do something on comedy next. Um, Please do. And I'll, I'll be a guest speaker. I can be your yeah, guest exactly. speaker. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I'd like that very much. I, I've been doing courses on edX, you okay. know, that website. Yeah. So I've been, I've been doing a Harvard course on the rise of communism in China because yeah, okay. I'm fast. It's really good. And it's, it's little yeah, bite-sized. Yeah. It's like snackable lectures. They're like yeah, five yeah, minutes yeah. each. Um, and it's just a dry lecture, but it's still nice. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, enjoying yeah. it. So I'm fascinated. I had no idea. I had no idea they had a hard time getting into power. Didn't know. Didn't know that. Right. The commies. They had yeah. a hard time at first. It's hard for everybody. Even Mao. <laughs> everyone's got a. Everyone's got a struggle. Even right? Mao oh, had had rough mornings. Communists have to um, <laughs> keep pushing on through. <laughs> uh, so I will. Um, I'll send you this, and and you can share it. And, and check out the other episodes and uh, I'll put a little blurb on and I thoroughly enjoy this. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, you're very Ronald welcome. Scott. Thanks, thanks for asking me, yeah. <laughs> and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. This is Raylan Casper-White signing off. Mm -hmm.